Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You know, there's plenty of, we were talking about food, there's plenty of food talk in the Bible, which should not surprise us because in the, the most famous prayer in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, it talks about food, doesn't it? Give us this day our, yeah, whatever food we need for today. Uh, God, will you look after it and make sure we get what we need that way? So food is in the most famous of prayers, and there's plenty of food talk in the Bible. Shouldn't surprise us. But of all the commands that are given in the Bible, there is not one, not one, about praying before you eat. Don't you find that odd? In the Hebrew Scriptures, we sometimes incorrectly call it the Old Testament, but in the book of Deuteronomy, 8th chapter, 10th verse, there is a direct reference to praying and your food, praying and a meal. But Deuteronomy 8.10 says that we should pray after we eat. After the food is eaten, then you pray. Now there are a ton of cases where Jesus prays before he eats. The Old Testament, you pray after Jesus comes along. And there are tons of times where he's involved with food and he has prayer before the food is eaten. One of those times is in Luke 24. You may want to turn there. And it involves an appearance of Jesus after he has risen from the dead. In fact, it is on the day of. And only one person to date can testify to him rising from the dead. Others have gone to the tomb early in the morning. A group of women went to the tomb, and they find the tomb empty. A group of men run to the tomb, and they find the tomb empty, but they have no explanation. One of the women, Mary Magdalene, goes back after the the hubbub has died down, and she finds Jesus. And it's quite a reunion. But only one. And she runs back and tells all of the others who are now in some form of hiding. And they're all pretty much skeptical of what she has to say. The tomb is empty, but we're not quite sure where the body is, is their story. But she knows. Well, it's that same night when even his followers are skeptics. And some of his followers are in hiding, and others think that this is a good time to get out of town. And they're kind of like rats jumping off of a sinking ship. Because their fear is that what happened to Jesus may happen to them, and so it's a good time to get out of town. And we get a snapshot of two of them running away. They choose the unlikely time to travel night. It wasn't a safe time to travel. There are no street lights, there are no flashlights, you're in the dark. And so they wait until dark to get out of town. They're going to go to a little village about seven miles away that they think will be a little safer. And as they're walking along in the dark, they're being followed by a stranger. And the stranger fast walks up to catch them. And he overtakes them, and they've been talking as they've walked along, and 
the stranger says to them, what were you talking about just now? And they are a little bit surprised, and they say, well, we're talking about what happened to Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth. And he says, what? What happened? And they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know about what happened to him? That he was crucified and buried? That he was a great prophet and they killed him? Like they've killed all the other prophets? We should have figured. And he was buried and, and, and now the alarm bells all went off because the tomb is empty and the body has been stolen. You haven't heard that story? You've been living under a rock? And so they inform him in thumbnail fashion of what has happened over the last few days. And Jesus, because it's Jesus, unbeknownst to them, he begins to do what he does. To his core, he is a teacher. That's what rabbi means. He's a teacher. And he begins to take the scriptures that they are so familiar with that up till now have not made a lot of sense with them, and he begins to connect the dots with those ancient scriptures to what's happened over the last few days, explaining to them that it was essential that the Christ must come, suffer, die, but that the story was far from over if you leave him in the grave. He begins to connect all of that for them, and they begin to understand the word in a way that they never had understood it before. It's now late, and they decide it's a good time to get indoors, and so they check themselves into a, a resting place, an inn, but an inn would be too nice a description for what they're doing. It's just a place where you can lay down for the night. You pay a fee, and so they pay their fee. They're hungry, and they sit down at a table, and bread is brought. And the stranger asks for the privilege of praying over the meal. He breaks the bread. He prays. And when he finishes the prayer, it's like something has fallen off their eyes and they realize who this stranger is. And as soon as recognition flashes through their brain, he's gone. <laughs> he's gone. And they begin to talk to each other saying... Now we know who we were walking with. And we understand what he was saying. And, and, and as he related the scriptures to us, they remark about how our hearts burned within us as he talked with us in the way. Well, there's a case where Jesus prayed before they ate. But he didn't stick around for the meal. Now clearly, Jesus was in the habit of bucking some convention and long-standing traditions. He had no problem with that. And part of that was the way he prayed for a meal, not after, but before. And that's probably where we get it, is from Jesus. It's probably where we get it. When, when I pray for a meal, I keep it simple. I don't know about you. In fact, it's so simple that my family makes fun of the way I pray over food. It's pretty simple, pretty basic. I'm not a great believer in long, flowery prayers to begin with, but I keep it simple. You can do it any way you want. All I know is the goofy way I pray now is probably better than I did as a 
brand new Christian, especially if I were in a public place, sit down at the table to the meal, and, and I knew you were supposed to pray before you eat. I'm a new Christian now, and that's what we do. But I was embarrassed to have people see me praying out in public, so I would drop a spoon, and on the way up, I'd say, thank you, Jesus. So I'm better. I'm not great, but I'm better now. You know, there's something a lot larger, and don't try that at home, Jen, by the way. That's my gig. Don't, don't try my thing. But there's something much larger at play here in this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus than prayer over some bread. They see him. They really see him. And it's like it's for the first time that they see him, and then he's invisible. But something happens here. Think. Think with me. Having seen him, what can they now go and do to the end of their life, what can they, having seen Jesus, really seen him, he's not a stranger in the way, they've seen him alive after all that. What can they now go and do to the very end of their days that they could not do before? Think about it. They can bear witness. They can tell what they have seen. They can bear witness. Once that recognition of who he is and who they're dealing with and who's sitting across the table. Once that recognition flashes across the synapses of their brain, this fast mind that we have, and instantly they recognize that the unthinkable is now reality and they see him and their eyes are finally open to who their new friend and fellow traveler is. When that happens, they assume a new role as witnesses. They can be witnesses. Now more about that in just a moment. But for now, he doesn't have to be heard. He doesn't have to be visible now because they can bear witness. That's why he's invisible right now. Because now, you who have been touched by Christ, who have seen Christ, you can now bear witness that he is alive. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But question, question for us is, do I see who is at my table? It says, when he had reclined at table, you know that they didn't do it like the painting The Last Supper where all the guys collect on one side of the table. I've always wondered, why aren't they on both sides of that table? I think they were posing for the camera is why. But in actuality, what they did is they would lay down at a little low table. Think really fancy Japanese restaurant where you have to take off your shoes. And when he had reclined at table with them, when he took his place, that's what the word says. So my question is, do we see who's at the table with us all the time? Do you, do you realize how close, do you realize how close you are to Christ? At any given moment, at every given moment, how close you are to Christ. He's not far away. Oh, we, we, we say one day we will, we, will, we will be with him, one day. 
But that's really another distortion when you think about it that we've accepted, that one day we will be with Him. It's distorted to the point that it's really mutilated what the gospel actually says, and that is that He is with us right now. Not one day. He's with us right now. He's living inside of us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you, and you're in Christ, and He's not far away. You know, yesterday, we heard some stories about yesterday, and there are more. But yesterday, waiting for the event to start where I was, I was in the upstairs of the complex, and, and a, a young minister came up to me that I've, I've helped along the way and helped with his credentialing and, and helped in different ways to get him started. And now he's pastoring. <laughs> so, so now he's finding out what they didn't tell him in the book. <laughs> but he came up, and he, he was chatting and he said, you know, I've been thinking about you, me, for a couple weeks. I said, why? He said, because I want to come and pick your brain now that he's pastoring. I want to pick your brain. I hate that phrase. It sounds painful to me. <laughs> and on top of that, while he's picking around in there, he might uncover something that I intentionally buried and I don't <laughs> want to be found. But he said, I want to come and I want to, I want to find out what you think is the most important thing. <laughs> and I said, it's simple. I said, it's falling down simple. He said, will you show me? I said, I'll show you with the next person that walks up here. And then that fast, the guy walked up that had actually gotten lost. He was a, one of the guests. Uh, I could tell because he had a certain name badge on that he was a resident of the rescue mission, and he was there the, the mission had given everybody that was a resident that would come to the event kind of a special privilege, and they got a little reunited with their family thing, and he had his little boy by the hand. And so he walked up, and he was asking, he said, where can I find shoes? Well, he was totally wrong place. And I told him, I, I really know where to find the shoes. It was outside somewhere. But I said to him, do you know why you're here? And he said, well, yeah, to get some stuff. And I said, no. I said, you're here because a long time ago, within the Father, Son, and Spirit, within God himself, they loved each other so much and wanted to show love to one another. And they thought the best way to do that was to come up with you. I said, you started before you entered this planet in the mind of God himself because he loves you. And the guy stood there for a minute like somebody had hit him in the head with a brick and brained him. And then he said, thanks, and I said, good luck on finding the shoes. And he took the little kid, he hadn't let go of his hand, and he walked away, he said, did you hear what he told me? And I told the young minister, I said, that's it. It's that simple. Because the reality is, we are never far from Christ. The reality is that He's always at the table. And the reality is that He loves us more than we could ever know. Because our lives began not when we were conceived and not when we were born. But our lives began in the love of God Himself. And He's at our table all the time. 
do I ever miss him? Are there times when I, I feel like they did? It says he vanished from their sight. Are there times when I miss him? Years ago, I worked as a pressman on an offset printing press. That's what I did for a long time. And at this particular time, I was working in a, a, a shop that was a print shop for a multi-state drugstore chain. And we printed all their material, all their ads, all their forms, all their everything. And I was working on the press one day. Now, an offset press is kind of a cool instrument. It's a cool machine. It works on the principle that water and oil don't mix. And you've got this watery solution that runs across the printing plate at the same time that you're hitting it with a roller that's got this very oily ink. And the water and the ink don't mix, and on certain places you get ink, and on certain places you get water, and on those places where it's water, it doesn't transfer any image to the paper, and on the places where it's ink, it does. It's really cool. But I'm working on this machine, and you have sometimes, because of the way the chemicals work, a problem develops called glazing. It's where the rollers get glazed over and they don't receive the ink quite right. And it can mess up everything. And you have to take the press and deglaze it. Now the manufacturers and the OSHA people recommend that you turn the machine off and take each roller out and deglaze it by hand with a solvent. But every pressman knows that that's way too slow and you'll get behind. And so you learn, you can't teach this to anybody, you have to learn it on your own. You learn to take a rag dipped in that solvent and hold it really tight and put just enough pressure on the roller as the machine is running at several hundred RPMs. And you run your hand back and forth across that. Too much pressure, you lose a finger. Too little pressure, and you're not cleaning it properly. Not recommended that you do this at home. But that's what I was doing. I was deglazing the rollers while the thing is running. The other fellow in the shop was standing on the opposite side of the machine because he's wanting to learn how to do this, and the only way you can do it is do it. And so I was doing it, and he's watching, and I'm doing a great job. The machine is cleaning up. I can tell by the images that are coming through that it's working. When I'm just about done, I look up at him, took my eyes off of what I was doing, and I felt the rag go into the gears, and my finger barely touched one of the gears, but I hit the kill switch in time. I knew several pressmen that had lost fingers doing this. Again, not recommended. But I stopped it in time and saved my silly finger. My mistake was that I took my eyes off and I looked somewhere else, looked at him. Well, we do that with Christ, don't we? Sometimes with terrible effect. Worse than losing a finger if you take your eyes off Christ. Ask Simon Peter, you can nearly drown yourself doing that. But it does happen, doesn't it? That in our walk with the Lord, sometimes we do take our eyes off of him. I mean, think about the story of the soils that Jesus told. And sometimes his word and he gets choked out of our lives just by simple things, the cares of life. 
The stuff we do every day, sometimes, as harmless as it is, can cause our focus to come off Christ. It happens, is what I'm saying. It happens. And it can happen for a variety of reasons. But what we do next, after our eyes are off Christ, even momentarily, what happens next is really critical. Because when Christ isn't visible, when His presence isn't near, we can sense it. And what you do next is very important. Do you simply go on? Once you understand, you know, He's not in full view like He has been before. I don't sense His presence like I like to. Do you just go on when you sense that? Or or are you like the little toddler who, when the parent leaves the room, goes into a little mini panic (laughs) and does something about it, squawks, does something about it? I mean, which do you do? What I'm asking is, when you're not always seeing Christ clearly, and it happens, what do you do? Do you miss Him? Does your heart ache because He's not in full view? It should, and if it does, then you will do what you need to do to get Him back in view. Do I ever miss Him? Yes, I do. But it's what I do next. It's what I do next. Now, what does the Word do inside of me? For these people that were walking along with this stranger, as he's talking and he's connecting the dots of Scripture, their testimony afterwards is, were not our hearts burning while he was speaking the Scriptures to us? We burned. As we we came into an understanding, as we began to understand what the Word really meant about who this is that we've been dealing with. You've got to go in the story back to verse 27 of, of Luke 24 to really understand what they're talking about because they're referencing that trip earlier in the evening where it says, beginning with Moses. That's the first five books of the of the Hebrew Scriptures, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. Wow, all of them? He explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. That's what he did as they walked along, and that's what they reference after he disappears. Didn't our hearts burn as we walked along? And he explained all of that to us. What verses do you imagine he shared with them? says he started with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets. But what, what, what passages, what verses do you think he talked about as they walked that seven miles? Maybe, maybe he brought up to them Genesis 3.15, where our first parents, after they have By their own failure and by their own will, they have introduced the corrosion of sin and ugliness and dirt into our world. And they run and they hide and He seeks them out, even in their fallen state. He seeks them out and He tells the woman, our first mother, He tells her, all is not lost because you will have a descendant. You'll have a seed. And that child will be bruised by the enemy that tricked you. 
but your child will stomp his head dead. That was some encouragement to her. Maybe that's what he shared with them. And maybe he showed them that, look, Jesus is the one who is the child to come. And he was bruised on the cross. And he was bruised by the humiliation and the beating. And he was bruised by all of the hostility. But it didn't kill him. And he's come back to crush Satan's head. That's what he's done. Maybe he, he shared that promise of good news with them and reassured them once again that, that in dealing with Satan, that Christ had also dealt with Satan's favorite ally, death, and he had conquered both. Maybe he shared with them Genesis 22, what's called the Akita, the binding of Isaac where Father Abraham received specific verbal instruction from God to tie up his son and lay him on an altar of sacrifice and there take his life and somehow please God with that kind of obedience. Maybe he reminded them of that story of how as the dagger was coming down toward the boy's throat that at the last microsecond, the hand is stopped and another sacrifice is supplied. A substitute is found. And maybe he related to them as he told them that story again of how at that point when the knife blade is stopped an inch from the boy's throat and the father and the son are still trembling and they're still covered with perspiration, that the father speaks from heaven to Abraham, and he says, because you have obeyed my voice and nothing else, he had nothing else to go on except what God said, because you have obeyed my voice, all the earth will be blessed by your seed. And maybe he connected with them and showed them how that seed is Christ, and that, and that Christ will bless all people. Not some people, not just Christians, not just good people, not just obedient people, but that Christ will bless all people. That's what Father Abraham was told. And When God says all, he doesn't mean some. Maybe he shared with them as they walked along that night, maybe he shared Psalm 22 that talks about the cross before a cross was ever invented. And talks about how the one on the cross will cry out, Why have I been forsaken by God? Why? And it, and it talks about how his tongue will clot up and dry in his mouth. It, it talks about the piercings of his hands and his feet and his side and how his bones will be pulled all out of joint. How he'll be surrounded by snarling enemies that are like dogs. He'll be stared at and mocked. And the only thing he's got of any value in that, not much, are his clothes, and they will be divided in a dice game. Maybe he shares with them, I think surely he shared with them that night something from Isaiah. Maybe he shared from the 25th of Isaiah, where it says he will swallow up death for all time. Hmm. Maybe he shared the 52nd chapter, his appearance will be marred more than any other human being. He'll be beaten that badly. You've seen the movie that depicts Christ beaten. 
Some people object to some of those movies and say they're too bloody. I don't think it was bloody enough. He's marred beyond any other human being. Maybe he shares with them Isaiah 53 that talks about how Christ will be despised and forsaken and rejected by everybody. He'll be a person of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he'll be pierced for our transgressions. And he'll be crushed because of our iniquity. And like a lamb that's led to a slaughter, he doesn't even open his mouth. Maybe he talked to them about Micah. It says the prophets. Maybe he mentioned Micah that talks about how the Christ will be born in little no-account Bethlehem. Maybe, Maybe he shared with them Zechariah. That says, rejoice greatly, O Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for your king comes to you mounted on a donkey. Maybe he went to the very last of the prophets, Malachi. The very last voice that anybody would hear. The very last prophetic word before 400 years of stone-cold silence. Maybe he... He showed them where Malachi has a promise to send my messenger, his cousin John the Baptist, to clear the way before me, and then I will suddenly burst on the scene into my true temple, the lives of his people. Don't don't you wish you could have walked along with them for that seven miles? Don't you wish you could have been there with him and, and, and sensed what they sensed, that deep burning as the Word resonates in your heart and you begin to understand it and your mind is blown to bits with new comprehension about what this book is actually saying. It's saying Christ. It's talking about Jesus. It's saying He is the thing. Christianity is not the thing. Church is not the thing. The cross, as glorious and as wonderful as the cross is, it is not the thing. It's Christ. He's the thing. He is the bridge between Father, Son, and Spirit. He's fully invested. He is fully God. He's fully invested in who God is, but He's he's fully invested in who we are. He's fully man. In every sense, human. And He is the connector, you see? between this blazing relationship that is love itself, that is love within Father, Son, and Spirit. And He connects all that with us filthy people in His own body. Last Wednesday, we, in our study, we, we uncovered a word, a word from the original language of the New Testament, categoro. Categoro. If you were there, you remember. It looks a lot and it sounds a lot like our word category. That's where we get our word category. But we found it in an unusual place. We found it in a discussion in the last book in Revelation that identifies Satan as the accuser of the followers of Jesus. The accuser. And that word is categorical. Satan is a divider. Satan's great work as an accuser 
is to divide people, to divide groups of people and kinds of people and colors of people and nations of people, all kinds of false divisions that ought not exist. In fact, this book that we're studying on Wednesday, Galatians, talks all about how the walls in Christ all come down. And there are no categories. Because the problem with categories is it produces us and them, you see. And there is no us and them. It produces I'm right and you're wrong. It produces all kind of walls that separate and divide and categorize. And I'll tell you the truth, the problem with the categories and the wall building, whether it's between colors or classes or any other kind of people. The real problem is that it flies in the face of a God who within himself is a relationship and is all about relationships. And when there are categories, it kills relationships. So it's anti-God, isn't it? But one of the worst and the most inaccurate of all of the us and thems is that those who are inside of whatever God is doing are different from those who are outside of what God is doing. That you're inside or you're outside. But isn't it clear that every human, every person that's ever been conceived, whether it's a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Sikh or an atheist or a skeptic or a Protestant or a Catholic, or a clever evangelical, or, or, or a backwater fundamentalist, whether it's a Mother Earth worshiper, that every human being are deeply loved by God, who is within the Father, Son, and Spirit Himself love. And, and isn't it just as clear that everybody on the planet is in some way, consciously or unconsciously, moving or being moved toward that blazing love that is God. Those on the inside, that's us, we hope. And those on the outside, probably not the best way to describe reality. How about this? How about we describe it as seeing and not seeing. Christ has already done something for everybody. Some of us see it and some of us don't. That's all. And that means that our task is to go around helping people to see. Not trying to sell them anything. Just help them to see, that's all. Seeing and not seeing. You ever wonder why there are so many Jesus and the blind man stories in the Bible? Seeing and not seeing. Christ loves everybody. Everybody that's ever been conceived, even if they never got the opportunity to draw breath or see light, He still loves. Because they were, first of all, as I told that guy yesterday, conceived as an expression of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the great sadness is that so many have not yet begun to see that. There's so many within the walls of churches this morning that have not yet begun to see that. I don't think that the greatest mission field is Africa. I think it's our churches. 
But to see Jesus makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because in him you see the love of God. That's what he is. You see the love within God, and and you see the love that is God. You see that in Christ. And once you see him, like these people across the table saw him, once you see him, you can't stop seeing him in everything and everybody, and you become a witness. So is Christ invisible to some? He is. And you make him visible because he's in you. He's in you. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.